So we've been looking at the book of Philippians together. And uh, yesterday we looked at kind of the last part of verse 18, and we ended in verse 26. Good morning, Pat. And so today we're going to look at Philippians 1, 27 through 30. Good morning, Katie. Um, and actually, I, I think just because of the the topic and the kind of the way that it's going, um, good morning, Marcella. Uh, we're going to start, I'm going to start reading at verse 25, because verse 25 kind of transitions Paul's thoughts into this next section. So just to kind of um, catapult us into there, I'm going to start in verse 25. So Philippians 1, 25 to 30. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith and the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. So Paul's kind of starting a new section. In fact, uh, a lot of times they group the passage um, from verse 27 all the way to uh, um, chapter 2, verse 16. It's kind of all in the same thought process. He's changed thought processes, and he's looking at kind of, if you will, the first part that we're going to look at today is what Christian conduct in relation to a hostile world looks like. Start of chapter 2, he's looking at Christian conduct within the believing church, the body of Christ, and then he looks at Christian conduct and how it relates to to Paul and how it relates to the apostles there. So Paul has just got done telling them in verse 26, and it's because of this, I'm looking forward to come see you again. And you can just imagine, because remember, they know him well. Uh, this is like grandma and grandpa, you know, uncle and aunt coming and saying, hey, I'm going to come visit you. Be ready. I'm coming. And, and so you can just sense the church getting excited in Philippi. They're excited that Paul might be coming back. And then in verse 27, there's a cooling effect. There, there's this statement of a, but if, you know, but if only, so only let the, you, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent. And there's kind of this cooling effect. You can just imagine because these are read audibly, right? You know, so this letter was read to a church. Good morning, Vicki. And the person standing there reading the words of Paul and going, I can't wait to see you, you know, because of my coming to you again. And they're probably applauding and cheering and all excited that Paul's coming again. And then he goes, but whether I come and see you again or I'm absent. Good morning, Mom and Dad. You can just imagine the cooling effect that it had on the church. 
Paul didn't want them to become dependent on him. He didn't want this church to be dependent on him as the apostle. Good morning, Sharon. He, he didn't want them to be so reliant upon him for their growth. You realize the issues in that. You see, churches, we can see that in our culture sometimes, churches that grow up around personalities, when something happens with that personality, the church struggles. And I'm talking a four-walled church, a organization church, not the body of Christ. And, and sometimes the body of Christ can suffer too. But, you know, examples of that are, say, Mark Driscoll. You know, when Mark Driscoll was asked to step down from his church, he had 13 churches that all video venued him. And within a matter of a couple weeks, they all shut down. They hadn't taught and trained their campus pastors on, on how to be able to manage and run and do church without this figurehead on the screen. When a church becomes all about a personality, that's why often it's, it's so difficult for someone to follow a long-term pastor. You know, I, I think of even here in our town, the Lutheran Church, the, the, the pastor that was here had been here for a very, very long time. Same with the United Methodist Church, very, very long time. And so in both situations, the denominations brought in somebody to preach for a few years to help bridge the gap before bringing in a permanent pastor because they understand that it is difficult to follow long-term 10, 20, 30-year people. If we're not careful and the church is all about a personality, when that personality leaves, the church crumbles. We see it often in church plants. I'm a big fan of revitalization and church planting, but sometimes when church plants are all around a personality, which they kind of are because they have to be, that's what draws people to a brand new church plant. You know, you talk about a church plant in our area and there's a big one nearby and and you hear, well, pastor, and they, they talk all about that pastor because it's all about them. That church is their personality and now you bring in a new person with a different personality and that church will begin to struggle. Good morning, Ray. Paul's presence or absence should not be the determining factor in this church living out the gospel. And that's what he was challenging them on. That whether he came to them, whether I see you again or I'm absent, that you would live in a worthy manner. Paul is calling for the church not to hide in this world, I mean, there, he's preaching to a church that is under major persecution. Remember, this is like the second Rome. And so persecution uh, against those who did not worship the emperor was huge. And so the Philippians, uh, the, the church in Philippi, were going through the same experiences, many of them being persecuted. Many of them couldn't buy food at the market because if those markets were, you know, worship some other God and you didn't worship their God, then you couldn't buy from them. I mean, there was so much going on during this time with the church and Paul is calling on this church not just to hide, not to hide its existence for fear, but to be a light. He wants them to live among the people and the institutions of Philippi in a way that is informed and disciplined by the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why he uses this term worthily, right? You see that in, in verse uh, uh, 27, to, to, in a manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. 
Um, some translations actually do use that word worthily. They kind of make it up, but worthily, it's it because it, it's an adverb. You see, it was an adverb uh, describing of how they should conduct themselves. So often he would use other words like what it looks like. You know, we talked about it. What are the marks of Christianity? And we talked about those type of things. Now he's saying, I'm not going to point out all these marks per se. I'm going to just challenge you that this is how you ought to walk. And it's worthily. You need to walk in a worthy manner. In a worthy manner is how they ought to conduct themselves. Not an adjective that just describes the characters of here, let's make a checklist and let's try to make sure that we walk worthily. And if I'm doing this, 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 and this, then, hey, I'm being worthily. And he's going, no, 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 there's no checklist. There's no checklist. The Holy Spirit inside of you will teach you what it means to walk worthily. The manner of life to be worthily. It's not easy and it takes unity in the church to walk, to make your manner of life be worthy. You know, I think he's also challenging us that we don't need to think and believe that outside friction is what causes or creates unity. You know, we sometimes as a church act like, well, the world is out to get us in every single little thing. And it is. And I'm not, I'm not downplaying that. But sometimes we play up the friction and we play, play up the, the issues that the church goes through. And, and can I tell you, I, I'm not... I don't know. I wasn't alive when they took the Bible out of church, right, in the 60s. But I can tell you that in the last five to ten years, we have seen a decay in families on a heightened scale. That, yes, maybe one of the stumbling blocks that caused it, that started the downfall, was taking Bibles out of school. But I can tell you it didn't have anything to do with that in my mind, okay? Let me say, Bibles in school would be great, okay? But we need to quit fighting about what we don't have and say what we need is Bibles in the families. We need people that walk out, step out, walk over to that neighbor and say, you know what? Uh, it, it's not a Bible in the school. It's getting the Bible in your heart. It's getting the Bible into your house. It's getting the Bible and the church into you, getting Jesus Christ working in your families. You could take away anything and everything that comes to the faith. You could take away our buildings and our ability to meet, but you cannot take the scripture and the Bible out of our hearts and out of our homes. Uh, I love the story of Brother Yun, and I'm getting on a soapbox now because this is something I'm pretty passionate about that we so often use these little phrases and we act like what's going on in our world right now is so detrimental and like the church has no voice in it and the problem is the church doesn't have a voice in it because we aren't being a voice we aren't taking the scripture that's in our hearts and being a voice for race reconciliation we we actually are spreading disinformation and and disease not spreading the word of god we're spreading politics and acting like Trump or Biden or whoever is our savior and is going to fix everything in the economy. Remember, what's the uh, what, what's the um, symbol of Wall Street? A golden calf, right? There is a statue, a Baalish statue on Wall Street. And yet we act like the economy is our savior and whoever can fix the economy is therefore the savior of America and thus the world. And 
man, I'm getting a little off here. <laughs> but we are called by Paul to live in the darkness and live a life in the manner that is worthy of Christ. Not that Christ somehow, it, it's us because we are the example of Christ, right? But yet that we live worthy, that we see whose model we have to follow. We start putting things in place in our own families in our own churches, in our own communities. Be the change you want to be. I, I recently had a conversation with someone whose friend, um, they they went down to an area where they felt, they, and it's kind of the Bible Belt area, and they're like, oh, I understand why it's the Bible Belt, because wow, it just seems so amazing, and the church was so awesome and all that, and I'm going, you know, the grass is greener on the other side, and typically because that means that there's more manure, <laughs> um, you know, I, you know, if you've ever heard that, and and so their friend, though, they challenged them and said, okay, I, I get it, maybe, maybe those churches do seem like they're more on fire, or maybe Maybe you, seem, you feel like you're missing it up here in Northeast Ohio and you can't find that sort of fire. But let me just tell you, and this friend went on to say, be the change that you want to see. Start with you. Let God work in you. Your prayer be start with me, God, so that it creates a ripple effect that affects others around me and begins to put the Bible back in families and puts the Bible back in our homes and therefore puts the Bible back in schools because it's in the hands of those Christian kids that are walking around the school every single day and in their hearts too, even if it can't be in their hands. Don't believe that outside friction is what creates unity in the church. The church, the body, must act, not simply react to culture. That's what we do all the time. We react instead of acting to the culture around us. Number one, acting by falling on our knees in prayer before we open our voices in protest. He goes on to talk about the destruction of the wicked in contrast to the salvation of the believers. And can I remind you, he's not talking about the immediate. Sometimes we as a church want to call hellfire and brimstone down on those that we don't agree with for whatever reason. And that's not the case. He's calling, talking about future destruction of the wicked. He's talking about what will happen in the future because we know all those who don't turn to Christ are destined for eternal punishment. And that shouldn't be a triumphant phrase like we often use in the church. It ought to be another call for us to fall on our knees, weeping and broken, as Isaiah did and others, and challenge us and embolden us to speak up for the truth that there will be no racial equality until we fully learn to walk and live in a manner that is worthy of Jesus Christ. That the, the pro-life movement of uh, not just abortion, but foster and orphan care and prison reform and all of that will not change until we truly begin to see that there is no superiority in Christ. We as a church have more than what the world has. We don't just have omens. We don't just see warning signs or 
respond to reactor warning signs. We have the evidence of God's grace working in us that breaks us for those around us. We are called to live worthily in light of suffering. In light of suffering. Because we are citizens of heaven, we can live in light of suffering. As citizens of heaven, when our mind is constantly realizing that this is not my home, right? This is not my home. Great songs on that, by the way. I could list probably four or five that talk about it. And we sing them and we love them. But we don't always believe it. We act like this is our home. And we act like if the economy is broken, therefore I'm going to be broken. And I'm going to be sullen. And therefore I'm going to vote. And I'm going to do it. I'm not against voting. <laughs> that, that kind of can come off cross. Okay. Uh, um, but we see our salvation in our current situation. How would that have worked for the Philippians? <laughs> I mean, they're, they're, they're facing Diocletian in a few years. Fast forward, these people that were written to, their kids, and probably them even as they were older, are probably the ones who went and lost their lives to the gladiators and in the Colosseums because of their belief in Christ. So, how do we equate where we are today because, well, the economy's bad. Yep. <laughs> yeah, they they won't let us preach or you know teach teach Bible, which actually a lot of schools do still teach Bible. They just had to teach it in a little bit different way. And there are a lot of great Christian teachers that I know of, even in our area, who oh they take their Bible to school and they have it on their desk every single day when they were in session. Right now, look at it. You know, we're, we're looking at, I, I hear so many people, homeschooling is on the rise, and there's going to be an opportunity for the Bible to be back as a main curriculum in schools, but it needs to be taught. I was talking with a parent who was talking about teaching, yet, yet we have a hope and a future far better than this world. Amen. We're citizens of heaven. And I was talking with a, a, a parent who was going, you know what? I want to teach Bible, but I don't want to teach it the way I grew up because when, the way I was raised in Sunday school and everything, which it was great, she goes, there was nothing wrong with it. But the problem was the stories didn't get it. I heard all the great stuff. And it almost made me challenge my faith when I start reading scripture and I see that, well, David, yes, he's a man after God's own heart. But I didn't know he was an adulterer. I didn't know he was a murderer. I, I, I didn't know that his own son tried to kill him. I, I didn't know that there was a, a judge who sacrificed his own daughter because he was stupid. Yeah, she's like, these are the things that I didn't learn and what I began to learn because I grew up putting on a mask, acting like everything was perfect. I didn't realize that Peter put his foot in his mouth almost every time he spoke. <laughs> That's the stuff that I want my kids to know. I want them to know that you don't have to be perfect because God is and he will continue to help you walk and live in a manner that is worthy and all you need to do is focus on him. Focus on him. Or citizens of heaven. You know, he uses this term, citizens of heaven, in this form of allegiance. Uh, allegiance to heaven, therefore, not allegiance on earth. You know, they were living in a time where, uh, by the way, so the word that he uses here, often, you know, in other passages, he's used walk. And I've said that a couple times, and it's not walk. So walk was a word, uh, peripatio, 
peripatio. Um, there's another word that was not used. It's anastrophe. Um, those both kind of talk about walking, and he would use these in other terms. This word that he used, I'm not even going to try to pronounce it, but it had this idea of citizenship, worthy citizenship, because he's talking to the second Rome. He's talking to people who are bombarded. They, it's like living in Washington, D.C. They were bombarded where they didn't, you know, people were worshiping the emperor. They put what the emperor said as higher than what God said. <laughs> Man, I so want to go off on a tangent on that. Be careful, whether it be Republican, Democrat, any, that your politics do not take your allegiance over God. You know, I talked with a pastor here recently who um, is a military member. And he took the flags down. They bring them out. And they, they use them during key events. They are very patriotic, just like I'm very patriotic. But yet his point was this. When you say the Pledge of Allegiance, you're required lawfully to start with the Pledge of Allegiance to the American flag before the Christian flag. When you fly them, and especially when they're on the stage by technicality, the flag, the American flag is placed at the right hand of the speaker or the right of the audience if off the stage. It's a, a, you know, a requirement to honor that flag highest. I mean, if you were to fly the Christian flag higher than the American flag, you, would, you could be fined, right? You could be in trouble for that. He goes, I will fly the American flag in my house in my yard, but in my church, Jesus Christ is the flag that I fly the highest. And I share my allegiance to him and him only when I am in that stage, when I am on that platform, when we are preaching and when we are worshiping. Because if we're not careful, we begin to worship something that is an idol that is not God. America hasn't been around that long. And all it takes is one or two bad presidents and one person in another country with an itchy trigger finger. And it could go away. Like the dominance of England, the dominance of Rome, the dominance of the Greeks, the dominance of history. Our allegiance, we are citizens of heaven. Citizens of Christ first the Roman citizens, they were programmed to be superior. That's where the superiority of the white race began. It was in the Roman Empire. As they began to take over Europe. If you weren't Roman, you weren't much. So Paul calls us to see our citizenship as being in heaven above all else. Do not get caught up. On the things, do not conform to the things of this world. Do not get caught up with the things of this world because you are aliens and strangers here. And that should cause us to live humbly and worthily 
in our walk for Christ. A worthy life draws from the Spirit, from the Holy Spirit. We'll end with this real quick. It's this, the, that the advancement of the church takes center stage, and he goes on to talk about first steadfastness the, in verse 27, that we are able to stand firm, to stand up, to be counted in a hostile environment. It was a term that was used in military that you didn't back down, you didn't give up ground. We're called then to unity in verse 27, unity that's especially important when Christianity is on trial. It is. When they take the Bibles out of school and there's a reason to stand up and try to get it back in, yes, there is a, a call for unity to stand up for that. I'm not against that. But we can force the Bible to be back in schools, but it doesn't force it back into hearts. That's my challenge. Courage is the other thing he calls us to in 28 to 30. and It's not bullied into submission. It's not... Uh, uh, courage through persecution or because of threat that's on us. Paul is sharing how to suffer for the cause and it's to bring one closer to Jesus Christ through our suffering. You could say testing was a form of baptism. There's a historian, Kenneth um, Lauderette, a uh, French term, I can't, I never took French. You know, it points out that every time in Christian history there was a wave of persecution, the church emerged more purified and stronger. Steadfastness, unity, courage, those things, they can't be forced upon someone. They can't be forced, they can't be faked. They're matters of what God does in you. What the matters of what God does in me. So what would it look like if the gospel took center stage in our homes? What would it look like if the gospel took center stage in our lives, in, in our church, in everything we did? What if the gospel took center stage in public If the gospel was our primary focus, we might not get caught up on colors of carpet and colors of wall and stained glass windows and those things are all niceties. But if the most important thing is to reach the lost for Jesus Christ, what if the gospel took center stage what if we lived, like Marcella said, as if we have a hope and a future far better than this world and our only desire is to share that with every single person we meet? What if the gospel stage took priority and precedence over selfishness? We're going to talk a little more about that tomorrow and some of the things that Paul writes to. What if the gospel took center stage in your life? And you saw everything is a way to give God glory and to advance his kingdom. You know, if one person acts like that, it changes one other person, maybe two. And if they're able to disciple and teach that person to live with that same passion, that affects another one or two 
in each one. And next thing you know, you have a Ponzi scheme or a Amway scam or you know whatever you want to call it. But it's for a better scam. Well, it's not even a scam. I better not say that. But it's for a better cause. And that's the gospel of Jesus Christ. What if truly we are not being disciples of Christ unless we are making other disciples? Through evangelizing, witnessing, telling others about Jesus Christ and helping them grow. What if the gospel took center stage? God, we want to clear the stage of everything that's in front of you. Lord, your reckless love abandoned all to climb that Mount Calvary to shed your blood for us. Nothing we ever could do could repay that. Nothing we ever could do could match the grace that you've given us. So, Lord, we don't do it to match. We don't do it to one-up. We don't do it to be seen higher of. God, we want you to be center stage and that we learn to love you so much that we can't help but make everything about your gospel. Clear the stage of our hearts and our lives of anything that we have made an idol before you. And we'll give you all the praise and all the glory. In the name of your Son, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. Go in peace. Have a wonderful rest of the day.